Welcome to OAC Vancouver's podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We believe that Jesus is needed and relevant for people in Vancouver today. The message of God's love and promise of wholeness was destined to be experienced within a faith community that worships, studies scripture, and prays together. We warmly welcome you to journey with us towards greater connection, purpose, and peace. We'll be sharing our recorded services and conversations with health and wellness experts. Enjoy. I see you way back there. So it reminds me of a story of a pastor. They were, con- they were constructing a new church, and it was going to be high-tech, very high-tech. Everything was the best. So they come in, they have the buildings being finished, the drywall's up, and he walks in because the pews and the seating were supposed to have been put in that particular week. And he walks in and he sees one row of, of, of pews. And he said, where's the rest of them? They're, they're all full spirits. He's getting upset. And he said, well, pastor, hold on. You need to relax for a minute. See, in the back, we have a button. Notice they're all numbered. So the people, when they walk in, they have to fill the front pew. And then when that front pew is filled, then we hit a button and the second pew comes up out of the floor, just rotates, and we fill up the second pew. And we just consistently work our way back. He said, oh, I like that. Because, you know, Adventists, they like to sit in the back. I like this. And they said, he said, this is high quality. And he said, but pastor, we've got one other feature that's a benefit to the congregation. He said, what's that? He said, we have another button back there. When you go over 30 minutes, the pulpit disappears. So next time I come, you sit up close, I'll preach shorter. How's that? I was uh, in Half Price Books, which is a used bookstore in the States. And I was in the religious section and I heard a voice as I was looking at the bookshelf. She said, are you, are you a Christian? I said, yes. And I turned around and there was this little lady, maybe about five foot. She was wearing a mask and she had a hat on, but I could tell that she was likely in her 50s late 50s, early 60s. And she said, well, could you help me with something? I I need to pick out a Bible, and I don't know what Bible I should read. So I asked her a couple questions, and then um, I'm geeky that way. I love all the different translations, but I recognize not everybody likes the things that I like. So I talked to her about the different ones, and we settled on a particular translation. She picked it out, was ready to go, and then she turned around and she said, could, could you tell me how to pray? Like, oh, well, okay. And then she said, well, the reason I asked these questions is that I, I got baptized a year ago, and I don't know how to read my Bible, and I don't know how to pray. In fact, she said, as I've started to probe a little bit more, this is 20 years of pastoring that kicks in, just to kind of know people's journey where they're at. And I, as I was talking to her, she finally she said, you know, I, I just got to tell you, I don't like being a Christian. She said, I'm more miserable today than I was a year ago before I was baptized. When I go to church and when I hang out with the people that I've baptized into that congregation, I go, they tell me everything I've done wrong and tell me nothing about what I've done right. In fact, she said, as we probed a little bit more, she said, I just have come to the understanding I don't think God even loves me. I said, really? She said, yeah, it's just a list of do's and don'ts. And if I do enough, then I'll get to heaven. And I said, oh, boy. I said, do you not have a coach, a mentor? No. And I said, well, do you have a minute? I said, I just want to, I, I, I cannot leave this conversation without sharing some, something with you that could cha- be changing for your life. 
She's like, I've got time. So I went back into a story that I'm going to share with you now, and I'm going to tie it to education at the end. So there's a reason for this. And this is a story that I told her. But before I do, let's just have a quick prayer. Father, it is your word. It is our life. May the two intersect. In Christ's name, amen. I said, you know, you're familiar with the story in Luke. She said, no, I don't know what story you're talking about. And I said, there's three stories in, the, in Luke 15. She said, oh, well, what are they? And I said, well, there's a story about a lost sheep, lost coin, and two lost sons. She said, I really don't, that does, it kind of sounds familiar, but I don't really know that I know it. I said, all right, well, let's go through it real quick. I said, first of all, in the, in the grand scheme of things, there's a thesis statement in the Bible, and it was shared here. It's 1 John 4, 8. God is what? God is, folks, say it with me. God is love. That's the thesis statement of the Bible. Everything else just proves it. That's it. So in so many ways, God's character had been misrepresented by those who should have known him the best, the Jewish nation. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the, and the higher-ups who should know and be able to, to disseminate the, the scriptures that they had, they should be able to see a pattern of God's amazing grace and love as he dealt with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and all of their nation. All the way down, they should have seen grace exemplified by David. But they misrepresented, they made God a very rule-keeping God. They couldn't see that grace is God. They saw that strict guidelines of rules, regulations, represents God best. So Jesus is trying to dispel what love and God are to be based on what they have been leading to that point and telling people what he was. So he tells these stories. He said, look, there was a man, he had a hundred sheep. He got, he got them all back. He realized there was one missing and he and rather than saying what we would do today, so look, if we had a dollar and we had it divided up into 99 pennies or cents, for those of you here in Canada, I'm speaking American, sorry. We would say, oh, it's just one. Who cares? In fact, Lowe's, Home Depot, Home Sense, and Winners, yeah, I threw a little Canadian in there for you. They have shrinkage built in every year. They're happy to lose 5 7%. They just count it in. But God says, no, 1% matters. And here in this story, that man goes out and he gets his lost sheep. And he carries them back. Now, that's a sermon in itself. That's not the whole point of this story. But I will tell you one thing I find fascinating that Jesus revealed. The kingdom of God is a party. God throws party when lost people come home. That's how much he cares about one person being lost. So then you drop down to... Verse 8. And then you want to throw another monkey wrench into theology and an understanding of God's character and his nature. Jesus himself said there was a woman who had 10 coins. First it was a man, then it was a woman. So there's another whole theological aspect of the nature of God and the attributes of God as related by genders. He said she had 10 coins ever thought to be her dower she lost one she scours the place and she looks for it she finds it what does she do she calls all their friends and neighbors and she throws a party so there's two points that we have that's another sermon in itself and that is the kingdom of god is a party i can't wait because it's going to be a good one but then we get to the story that i share with this lady 
I said, you know, there was in this story that Jesus is telling there's a rich man who has servants and he has two sons. Now we can look in the context of culture and we can read this story and we have to be careful not to read more into the story than what's there, but we also need to look at context. We talked about this in the class for a little bit this morning before I threw something on the table and then left. And, and that is, never read a text for more than what it is, but never be willing to leave anything on, out either that should be in there that can help you understand that text. And in the in context of that culture, we know that one, this man in the parable was rich. He had servants. So likely in that culture, he would have lived close to a community of maybe two, 300 people in a little village. And being one of the wealthier people, he would likely spend time at the gate. Maybe not every day, but most of the time he would be there. And he would be considered one of the elders and he would be respected in the community. While he was respected in the community and looked up to as seen as somebody of importance, his son had a different idea. His son one day came to him and said, you know what, Dad, as I've been thinking about it, I would prefer that you were dead rather than alive because I can have my money that I want to go do my thing rather than wait for you to die off because I could be waiting for quite a while. So what, essentially what he was telling his father was, please die. But if you're not, just give me the money now, and you'll be dead to me. What he should have done in that culture, and what the listeners were thinking at that point, is he should have taken his son and dismissed him. Maybe in that culture he could have been flogged, but he could have been excommunicated from the family and said, you know what, you can leave, but you're not taking one dime with you. But he went ahead and he divided the money that he would have had at the end. Now, again, there was an older son, and that's, Sermon doesn't count this son. We're not going to talk about him today, but you need to keep this in mind of the story. And that is that the elder son would have gotten two-thirds of the money, and the younger son got a third. So he walked away with a third of the money. And it says, as Jesus tells the story, that he went to a country far off, and he squandered it on wasteful living. And it was not in that part of the story, but it's the son, the older son, when the, when the younger one comes back, that reflects to his father, he's been wasting it on prostitutes. Well, how do you know? because it doesn't relate that in the beginning part of the story. But the elder, the elder son seemed to know that. But as Jesus tells the story, the listeners are thinking, wow, this, this guy's really a mess. He's got three strikes against him. One, he wished his father to be dead. Number two, he went to a country far off, and then it gets worse. When he ran out of money and everybody rejected him, he went and found a job taking care of swine, which was about the lowest thing you could do in the Jewish nation. In fact, even to this day, when we went over in 2019, I asked the, for the validity of this statement. I was told at that point that it was true by our tour guide in Israel. If any pigs come in through Israel, they have to be on pallets so their hooves do not touch the ground. That's how much they are despised. So here's this young man from this wealthy family. He wastes everything that he's been given by his father. He blows it all. His friends are gone. And there he is with the swine. He's sitting there thinking, my, my lot in life, look what I have done to myself. And he begins, because you know what happens for human nature? We, we, we begin to see the worst in our nature, and, the, and we believe that, well, everybody's rejecting me, even the people that love me, or I thought loved me. And as he's sitting there in that pigsty, he's rehearsing his speech. He says, you know, the servants, get, they get treated pretty well. I could go back as a servant. He has a speech starts to figure it out. I'm not worthy to be your son, but let me be your servant. There's a big 
difference in stature between a son and a servant, especially in that culture. So finally, he gets the nerve up. He, he determines that he will beg his way back into the favor of his father. He's walking down the road, and imagine the surprise in the story as he's walking home reluctantly, maybe that's picking up the pace just a little bit because he's even thinking the servant quarters are even a little bit better than what I was in. And he sees a figure running down the road, and he recognizes that it's his father. This is Jesus telling the story. Because apparently... The father has been waiting every day on the front porch rather than waiting, being in town with all the other wealthy individuals. He's been waiting at home. And when he sees him, he takes off. Well, that's very undignified in that culture. So, but he's taken his robe and he's lifted it up and he's girded into his belt and he's running down the road. Rich people don't run. They ponder. They walk or they send somebody else to go do it. But he runs after, sees him. And when he sees him, there right in front of him, embraces him, and he calls out real quick three things that need to be done. You need to hear this out. Hear this. Number one, he says, get a robe. Number two, get a ring. Number three, get the sandals. Number one, the robe was to tell the rest of the community as they're going to observe, because they, they, it's a small community. They know that he's out, probably on his way home, and they're going to know he is home. And he puts the robe on, and he says, he's mine. Leave him alone. The robe recognizes that I have accepted him with stature and back into my family. But you know, we could also draw another example that just like when we come home, God puts Christ's robe of righteousness on us. But you know what else he's saying? He's saying, he's mine, leave him be. She's mine, leave them be. Don't pick on them when they come home. Love them, accept them, welcome them, celebrate them. Because that's what God does. That's what the Father does. Then he gives them the ring, puts it on. The ring isn't just any ring. It's a signet ring that says you have full authority to act in my stead. You can sign documents. You can do whatever. You are officially back. And then he gave him the sandals, which elevated him from servant to son. So I'm talking to this lady. She said, I, I, I don't understand. I said, well, here's my question. You said, over the past year, you have told me that you feel more miserable today than you did before you were baptized. Why is that? She said, because I can't do anything to get God to love me. I have failed miserably. I said, well, let me ask you this. In, in this story, when the son was gone, did the father love him any less? And she thought for about two seconds. She said, absolutely not. And I said, so when you fail and you sin, do you think God loves you any less? She said, well, yes, I have thought that. But what you're telling me is that he doesn't. I said, no. Because the thesis statement of the Bible is, God is love. He can't be anything less. He can't be anything more. He, you can't earn it. You can't lose it. He just does. It's what he does. He can't change who he is. And so as the light went see it in her eyes. She said, you know something? She said, I've never in all my life heard of a God like that. Well, I'm furious inside because I really want to know where she got baptized and what church did this to her. And she told me, and then I wanted, then I, I knew the pastor and I actually wanted to go tell the pastor what a horrible church that he was running, but I didn't. That's the, that's a, that's a, that was a, for God to take care of. 
I had prayer with her, and she walked on her way. You see what a difference that love makes when you understand the nature of love? A.W. Tozer says in his book, incredible book, Knowledge of the Holy, the opening sentence in chapter 1 is this. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Let me re- repeat that for you. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. But I would add to that. Pastor Rhoda, I don't know if you'll agree with this or not. What we lead others to believe about God may be equally important. You see, every interaction we have with somebody either gives them a positive or negative aspect view of God. What do they see when they see us? I hope that when they see me, and flawed as I am, just as we all are, that they'll say, even though Dean is the way he is, at least we know God is love. And you say, what does all of this have to do with education? Well, I will tell you as I wrap this up, because I did promise to be short, even if you didn't promise to sit up front. When you walk into the doors of Deer Lake School, I remember when I first came in April to to interview, and I walked in the front door. I saw this quote on the wall that's like, bing! I recognize this quote. I've seen it before. I love it. To restore in man the image of his creator. That is the object of education. To restore in man the image of his creator. And there's more to impact inside of there, but it's dot, dot, dot. That is the object of education. But there's another sentence that follows that in the next paragraph on page 16 of the book, Education. And it says this. Love, the basis of creation and redemption, is the basis of true education. So I'm putting these things together for you, okay? I talk about love, I wanted you to understand that story because there's a lady in her 60s that doesn't understand God's love and we have an opportunity to help 5, 6, 8, 10, 12, 15, 16, 17, 18 year olds understand God's love so that they can walk out prepared in life with a better understanding of the God that we serve so they don't have to wait 40 years to experience it for themselves. And inside the walls of Deer Lake School, as I've been there for a little over two months, I have found in every single educator a desire to share God's love with young people. And I want you to know that because I think it's important, especially I made a commitment to come around to every constituent church to want to thank you for the investment that you've put into Deer Lake School. I, I've been a, a pastor for 20 years. I've sat on school boards for over 25 years. And you know what? One of the most consistent statements I've heard over and over and over and over and over, every time the budget gets done every year, I've had people in my church say, you know what? If we weren't putting money in the school, we'd have more money to do things here. I said, but you know what? We're putting money into an investment that that bears fruit for eternity. Because Barna has shown and has been proven that many people that make their decision for Christ do so by the age of 13. So we've been, schools give an opportunity to disciple that churches never get. And I'm, you know, I'm not going to use the tired line that, he, that 
that schools are evangelism because they are, but I'm going to say they're an opportunity for discipleship and to discipleship and mentor and love. And I watch at Deer Lake, and one of the most fascinating things about Deer Lake, and the reason why, even after saying no, and then we went through conversations, I, I came for this year, is because not only do we have Seventh-day Adventist children, we have others from Christian faith. We have Buddhist, Muslim, Sikh, Hindu, agnostic, and atheist. We have an opportunity to share God's love as we've learned it and as we continue to learn it with them. Understanding God's love will be an eternal study. We're just going to gain a little bit right here, one thousandth of one percent. But what I've learned so far in my walk on this planet for 50 plus years is that I wouldn't go anywhere else but be in God's grace because I've watched what he's done for me. And that's why I love Adventist education so much. And that's why Deer Lake School gets me excited. I went home here to Texas, and I was there, and I had been there for about eight days. My daughter said, you can't wait to get back there, can you? I said, no, I can't. I said, I'm going to miss you, because I miss you guys when I'm gone. But I said, I cannot wait to get back to Deer Lake School, to see the young people running through the halls, and to be with educators who are committed to sharing Christ through their words and their actions on a daily basis. So I want you to know and see that the heart of education is God's heart. And the heart of Deer Lake School education is God's heart being shared with young people through committed educators and staff. And I want to thank you as the head of school in partnership with Emily and others. I want to thank you, Oak Ridge, for being a, a passionate, dedicated, committed investor in Deer Lake School. And know that your money and the investment you've made may not always bear fruit as you'd like, but it will for eternity where it matters most. Thank you for listening to OAC Vancouver's podcast. Learn more at oacvancouver.ca. If you're in Vancouver, join us for worship Saturdays at 11 a.m. at 5350 Bailey Street. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. God bless you and have a wonderful day.